Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Hey, if you're new here, we're pumped to have you. If it's your first time worshiping with us, just know that we bought you something that we really, really want to give you. And so um, at Next Steps right now is a free t-shirt that we'd love to give you. All you have to do is take take that card from the back of the seat in front of you, fill it out, carry it by Next Steps on your way out, and uh, they'll give you um, a free t-shirt, which is probably what you're most excited about, but we're most excited about the information they're going to give you about our church, just so that you can make an informed decision about where God would have you serve and worship. Um, <clears throat> this morning, we wrap up our series that we called Hurdles. We started this sucker back at the beginning of March, and now that I'm talking, <clears throat> I feel like I've got something in my throat. Give me a second. <clears throat> All right. Uh, So we started this journey at the beginning of March. Now we are nearing the finish line. You're supposed to laugh because that was a pun. (laughs) Hurdles, finish line. All right. Uh, But we're going to talk about one more hurdle in our lives that often gets us out of the race. If you remember back to the first week, we we looked at Hebrews chapter 12. And what we saw is that uh, the author of Hebrews compares the Christian life to this race, this ongoing, long race of endurance, a difficult race that has tons of distractions along the way. The author of Hebrews had no idea what hurdles were because they weren't invented yet, but I believe if he were writing today, he would use the term hurdles, things that are going to try to trip us up, things that, um, as we talked about, <clears throat> you, uh, a good hurdler doesn't just get to run through each hurdle and not attempt to jump it. Did y'all know that it, you don't, if you catch the hurdle, as long as you try to jump over it, it, does, like it doesn't count against you? Did y'all know that? Anyway, you just have to make an attempt. You can't run through them, Okay. <clears throat> but <clears throat> at least that's what I read. All right, if you disagree with it, you can talk to me after. But you can't run through them, and at the same time, you can't fix our eyes on the hurdle as we get close to it. Our eyes have to stay fixed on Jesus, and we have to know where the hurdles are, and we have to glance down at them, these difficulties in our life. We have to know that they're there, but our eyes have to stay fixed on Jesus. What we began to see is that our eyes oftentimes get fixed off of where they're supposed to be. We too, we looked at our eyes being fixed inward. That oftentimes what drives every decision we make is our own self-preservation and the safety of those around us and our closest tight-knit relationships. We become so consumed with our clique, our family, our friends, that everybody outside is left to fend for themselves. And that's not a biblical way to live as a Christian. We, last week, we, week three, we looked at our eyes being closed. Right. Sometimes in the Christian life, we get so overwhelmed with fear and anxiety that we're not running the race. Instead, we are just standing in the middle of our little track with our eyes closed in fear and anxiety. And so um, if, if when our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, oftentimes uh, we can we can get caught up in that. And so if you if you struggle with anxiety, um, go back and listen to last week's message on Facebook and YouTube. Um, several of you messaged me after last week's message and how God spoke to you through it, and I'm thankful for that. All I asked was one, like one person, be touched by the message, and I got three text messages. So praise the Lord, okay? All right, <clears throat> but that, that was last week. So this week, we're going to look at hurdles that draw our eyes outward, okay? Because um, looking out is not good either. Our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. This hurdle is the hurdle of comparison, the sometimes dangerous game of comparing yourself to those around you. Um, and, a, and what I've perceived in my own life as a constant basis. So I want to show you this age-old issue this morning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Bible drill, turn or click to 1 Corinthians 15. It's in the New Testament. Part of your Bible. 
which is the, the back half. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll give you about three more seconds. Three, two. Here we go. I'm going to read it. Verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Paul, writing this, says this, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Before we dive into this, let me voice a prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we, we, believe, it to be, we believe it to be true, God, from beginning to end. And God, I pray that today, as we talk about your word, as we, as we dive into it, God, that you give us clarity of mind. God, to address the hurdles in our lives. God, to address this hurdle of comparison. Um, God, that this gets us so distracted. So, Father, we trust you with this message today. And, God, we ask you uh, to be with us today and for you to teach us to know you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, in this text, Paul's doing some comparison. Did you see that? Verses 9 and 10. Who's he comparing himself to? The other apostles. Okay. So if you're not familiar with this, Paul, uh, Paul did not walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Um, there, were, there were 11 men that are by this point considered apostles who did, right? They walked with Jesus. They were there for his ministry. They saw the miracles. Paul was on the outskirts of that. By the time Jesus dies, Paul is actually one of us. He says here, he said, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul, when he meets Jesus, when God finally changes his life, Paul was on his way with paper in hand to arrest anybody who's trusted in the name of Jesus and is saying anything about it in the streets. That's the kind of man Paul was. And so Paul, Paul's comparing himself. He feels intimidated to even be considered part of the list. When he takes this super humble approach, he says, I am unworthy of this title. And I'm the least of the list. Right? He's doing this comparison with them. But did you notice at the end he compares himself to them again? What did he say? He said, hey, but I'm killing it. Like this, is, there's some good stuff happening. I mean, I'm the least of the apostles and I'm unworthy to do it. But at the end, then he kind of flips the whole thing again and he says, but man, I'm working harder than any of them. So we're going to talk about that as we go through. What Paul's doing here is he, he, he's, he's wrestling with this comparison. And so, uh, like I did last week, okay? Like I did last week with anxiety, I tried not only to study the passages of God's Word that God had laid on my heart, but I wanted to understand some of the science behind this thing, okay? Because I want, I want to be... I want to make sure that I'm doing a good job and, and I'm understanding how our brains work and our hearts and our minds, not just uh, in a spiritual sense. And so what I now know is that Paul is engaging in what is pretty natural for all of us. I read about this guy named Leon Festinger. Totally impressing you right there, right? I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. <laughs> but anyway, um, but what he had, he in 1954, he presented this case scientifically that was called, he, he, he titled it the Social Comparison Theory. And it sounds like a study that would have been done sometime recently, but it was put together in 1954. In general, what he said is that social comparison is an effort to self-evaluate. He says we compare ourselves to others so we can better understand our own strengths and weaknesses. Here's what he said. Um, this is my own 
re-rendering of what he said. But all human beings are trying to evaluate their skills, their looks, their abilities, their personality, really every part of who they are constantly. But the only way to rationally do that as an adult is to compare yourself to other people. When I was a kid, I could watch the NBA and go, I mean, Michael Jordan's good, but um, did you see that layup? I did. You know what I mean? Like I had an, uh, an irrational view of others around me, right? But as an adult, this is what we naturally do. If an adult says, you know what? I have a pretty good sense of humor. What do they mean? I'm funnier than most of y'all. That's what they mean. I'm funnier than most of the other people. If on the inverse, if someone says, I don't think I'm very attractive. What do they mean? They're saying, when I look around at everyone else, I perceive that I am less attractive than the average person in the room. And so there's this constant game of comparison that's going on in our, in our hearts and minds. It's a natural inclination to do this as humans. We don't just compare ourselves. However, we don't just compare ourselves to those who are closest to us. The scary thing is, is that the pool of comparison is massive. In 1993, a study was done on relationships. What it found is that the average person has between 10 and 20 close relationships. And I know if you're an introvert in the room, you're thinking, 10? Good night. I got one or two. <laughs> and you extroverts are going, we're like 50, 60. Again, average of 10 to 20. But what they also found is that we have 150 wider, what they called social relationships. And so it's, it's not the 10 to 20 that we're comparing ourselves to. Yes, they're involved in it, but it's the 150 people that make up your pool of comparison. These are the people that you hear about, you see around, you talk about with your closest friends. You know enough about them to include them in this little game of comparison. These are your coworkers, your distant family members, and people you run into at the Piggly Wiggly. Like, that's what we're dealing with. Now, the problem is, is that when this study was done, Bill Clinton had just been inaugurated president. And the Nintendo 64 wasn't even around yet. And Michael Jordan had just won his third NBA title, was retiring, and was becoming a baseball player. What do I mean by that? It was a long time ago. That's what I mean. This study that said 10 to 20 people and 150 wider relationships, this was a long time. A lot has changed since 1993. One big one being the invention and mass acceptance of social media. Social media has greatly increased our pool of comparison. In 2014, for some unknown reason, that's the most recent data I could find, the average Facebook user has 338 friends. You see the pool now. And for some reason, I also couldn't find the average number of followers that you have on Instagram. But you've got, if, you have a, if you have Instagram, you have all these other social media accounts, the number just continues to grow. We have all these other people that now we can see what they have going on. It's no longer 150 people that are these social relationships. Now I can look into the lives of 338 people or more. On top of a quantity increase, the pool of comparison is now not only your community, not only your family, not only those in your workplace. It may be some influencer on the other side of the country who's made it big on YouTube. An up and, country, an up and coming country music star from Nashville or the biggest movie star that you would never meet in a thousand years. But you can look in and see what they have for lunch. You can see their house. 
You can see happy pictures of them and their kids. You see this. Not only is the pool getting larger, but now we're looking in on people that that are just... It's, it, it, we would never be able to look into the lives of Sandra Bullock and compare ourselves to her unless you watch the movie. But now we can with social media. And today, if we'll all admit, we would agree that the comparison is a big issue in our lives today. We have access to this bigger pool. We now have access to people that would have never been in our pool. And it is easier than ever to only put on the internet the things in our lives that are good. I listened to a comedian this week, and he was talking about he had a girl he had a girlfriend that he broke up with recently, and everybody was like, "Oh man, y'all seem like such a good match." He was like, "Yeah, we didn't post pictures on Facebook of us yelling at each other. Like all y'all saw was the happy pictures we posted on social media. Like we we was a wreck." And the same thing, we have all of this playing against us. So today, as we talk about comparison, I want to I want to show you three things today. One is that comparison isn't innately bad. We're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk about it that it can be really bad, and then we're going to, I'm going to give you just, some, some, just two keys uh, that we see in Paul, uh, Paul what, what we see Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians um, that'll help us deal with comparison, okay? So number one, comparison is not innately bad. Uh, this guy named Festinger uh, that I talked about earlier, he would say there are two ways that we compare ourselves to others, and I believe it, I see, we see them in Scripture too. Um, it's, first one is what he calls upward comparison. This is when you look to someone that you perceive to be better than yourself. You're looking up, right? We're looking up to them. Um, according to Festinger, uh, you compare yourself to them. They may be better than you in just one particular area or whatever. But in 1954, according to Festinger, you compare yourself to them in an effort to get better in that area that they are successful. You're looking to someone. I watch Michael Jordan. Instead of going, I'm better than him, I go, how did he do that crossover? Man, that was legit. Like I watch, I try to get better. I watch cooking shows to learn how they do it. I do all that. And right, then, it, then he also said there was a, what they call a downward comparison. And this is when you compare to yourself to someone that you think you are better at in a particular way. Right? That's where I watch some of y'all play basketball. And at least I go, and I go well, I'm not that bad. This is okay. I can shoot the ball. I'm better. Okay, we're good. But this is that downward comparison. Festinger in 1954 said this was done to help build your confidence. And when you look at Paul's comments earlier, which one do you see, upward or downward? Is he looking up to people he considers better than him in a particular way, or is he looking downward? Up and Thank you. All right, there we go, both. There it is. That's what we're looking for. Correct answer is C, both. See both. That's what we see. He says, I was a persecutor of Christians before Jesus saved me. I don't deserve to be alongside those apostles. Man, they, they walked with Christ. They saw the transfiguration of Christ. They saw the miracles firsthand. That's upward. He's saying, I don't deserve to be there. But then he's comparing himself to someone he perceives to be better than him in this really humble way. But then he points out, he inverts the thing, and then he says, man, I work harder than any of them. And that's downward comparison. He's comparing himself to some that he perceives he's outworked to bring confidence and self-worth and, and validation to himself. And so the question is, is comparison innately bad? I'm going to argue from God's word and continue to do so that no. Comparison is something that is natural in our hearts and minds, and it can be, a helpful, uh, it can be helpful for our emotional and social growth as a human. But here's what happened. Just like last week, anxiety is not sin. Your response to anxiety is sin. 
The same way comparison is going to happen naturally in your brain unless you can shut it off. The problem with comparison is how we respond to it. And that's when, as we're going to see, point number two, when does it move to sin? Comparison can be really bad. You notice how it's in all caps. I did that and Josh kept that and thank you. Really bad. We're going to see. Comparison happens naturally, but when we respond to it in a negative way, it can move to a place of sin. So when I started reading about social comparison, preparing for this week, two stories came to my mind, Genesis 4 and Luke 18. So if you want to go on and flip in your, if you've got a Bible, you can go on and flip to both of those, Genesis 4 and Luke 18. Last week, we looked at anxiety, and we saw that anxiety finds its root in the garden with the first man and woman. We later start calling them Adam and Eve. But after their mess up, we hear of their son's mess up. And I'm going to argue today that comparison first finds its root in Genesis 4 with the two, first two sons that we hear about, Cain and Abel. Look at this with me, Genesis 4, 3 through 8. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock, and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. You know what that word means? Ticked. That's what it means. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, uh, bro, um, let's go out to the field for a minute. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So do we see Cain doing some social comparison here? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. We see some social comparison here. Um, he no doubt looked to his, his brother's offering and compared it to his own. As God accepted one, he's sitting there going, what? he's looking, right? He, he, he's, he realizes something happened here. But the question is, was this a healthy comparison? Okay, here's a good rule of thumb. If the comparison leads to murder, it's never good. That's just a basic rule of thumb. <clears throat> if you don't get anything else, just write that down, and then you can sleep through the rest, okay? It should never lead to murder. Um, but the question is like, okay, that wasn't a good response. He, he saw this, but just think about, oftentimes we just go, man, Cain was just mad. He was, t- he was despondent, right? All this stuff. Listen, also think about this. If social comparison, if the comparison was going to happen naturally and, and, and Cain almost couldn't help that, then there had to be a response that would have been healthy in this situation. Right? And so ask the, let's, let's wrestle with that. Let's play a little game here. How could this have played out differently for Cain? When you're there and you've made your offering and then your brother, your younger brother makes his offering and then God accepts that one. Yeah, option one, kill him. But option two, how about this? Hey, man, hey, God, could you help me understand why you accepted his and not mine? Hey, Abel, can we talk about like what you did leading up to the offering? Like, what, did, Were you praying? Like, were, did you have a conversation with God? How was your heart leading there? Or like, ask the questions. I believe there's a way in which Cain could have had a conversation with God and or Abel that would have led to spiritual growth for him. Instead, because his attitude, his self-esteem, his self-worth was at a negative place, he responded differently. God had chosen his baby brother's offering 
Cain was the firstborn. Why would God choose him? He was frustrated, mad, maybe even confused. And this attitude affected how he viewed his brother's offering. And as Festinger hypothesized in 1954, this did not lead (laughs) to a healthy place for Cain. Because since 1954, we've learned a whole lot more about self-esteem and especially the role self-esteem and self-worth has on social comparison. The theory, as it's been molded, now includes the view that a view of oneself, if, if a view of oneself is too high or too low, it will affect the way a human compares himself to others. Here's a real-life example. I like to watch, uh, I have a Blackstone grill. You don't know about these? Flat-top griddle. If you don't have one, you should save money and figure out a way to get one because they're just awesome. And they're a lot, I say save money because they're a lot more expensive than when I bought mine. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> but I love watching people cook on a Blackstone. But sometimes um, I watch a video and I go, I want to make that. And then I go out to my grill and I make it. And what's, what's the first thing I notice? Right? I go, man, ah, they don't look the same. But in that moment, I'm comparing. Okay, maybe it's not as deep as some comparison that goes on, but I'm comparing. And what am I doing? I, I, have, a mo- and I have a moment here to go, okay, I can just flip the grill over, sell it, and get rid of it and be done. Right? I can beat myself up and go, dude, you stink, man. That's what happened last time I cooked. Kelly, testify. That I got to a bad place after I cooked the last time on the Blackstone, didn't I, babe? What did I cook? This wasn't in the first service. We're just, we're just talking here. Oh, yeah. So I've tried four times to make this thing they call uh, griddled corn. Y'all, it's just corn and bacon and, like, seasoning. And it looks so good, and everybody talks about how good it is. I've yet to pull it off. And, like, I came in, and I said, Kelly, what do you think? I was like, this is it. She tasted it. She was like, I mean, it's, it's a... Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. But then when she then when she fixed her plate, she got like this much of it, you know? In that moment I was like, I knew it wasn't good. I knew in my head it wasn't good. And I was like, oh. and in that moment I found myself because my self-worth already wasn't where it needed to be. My self-esteem was already lower, right? My self-esteem was already lower. I responded to that comparison in a way that was I mean, it wasn't crazy, but it was kind of crazy. I was like, I'm just never going to do it again. I was dumb. I'm just going to quit, right? Keep trying. Thank you. Thank you. See me out. So I've, I've got, I've got, the, I've, that's what happens. I'll give you another example, right? Uh, my son's playing baseball right now, right? My son's playing baseball. And uh, this is year two for him. And uh, we, we played we played four games this week because it was opening ceremony. Just like four kind of practice games, not real games. And we're we're four games in, and we haven't made contact with the ball yet. Okay, now that's tough on mom and dad to watch for one thing, but it's tough on a six year old too. Now the first couple, first few times, what we noticed was the first times he would strike out and go ah, you know, and he would kind of hustle back to the dugout. But his walk back to the dugout has gotten slower and slower and slower, right? What was happening at the beginning was that he was watching his buddies hit. And he was going, man, I want to hit the ball like that. Like, I want to hit the ball, right? Can I use your bat? Maybe I can hit. You know, it was always, it was this, it was this driving up. He was looking upward comparison. 
and it was driving him upward. But what began to happen over time is that his self-esteem began to dip after about strikeout nine in a row. And now he doesn't even, like, I mean, he wants to play. But like he, he, get, he, gets, he doesn't want to go bat, right? Because he's convinced in his heart, now I can't hit the ball. Right, This upward comparison that was driving him is now not. You see, this is the way we respond. And it's not about cooking. It's not about baseball. It's about everything in our lives. When we look around at those around us, we oftentimes find ourselves comparing ourselves and not allowing it to drive us, but to actually lead us to a place of, of despair. Comparison can be really bad. So let's look at, a, at an example of bad downward comparison. This one's a little bit more, you can laugh at this one a little bit better than Cain and Abel maybe. Well, y'all laughed at when he killed him, so that was kind of weird. But um, let's look at Luke 18, 10 through 14. So this is Jesus. This is, not a, uh, this is not Jesus telling something that actually happened. This was a parable. Now, it could have actually happened, but Jesus is probably embellishing some of the stories and, and some of the characters in this. But Jesus tells the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector who was standing far off, it says, Jesus says, would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said this. I tell you, this one, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other one because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now again, this is a story, but Jesus is using it to prove a point to his his followers. And is there some comparison going on here? Absolutely. This Pharisee, the Pharisees were a particular kind of, we could consider them a denomination of Jewish learners. They were the ones that were most devoted to keeping all the parts of the law. They were viewed as the extra faithful. So let me ask you, there's no murder here. So you don't, I haven't given you a a stick to judge by here, but do you think this is good comparison or bad comparison? Just say bad. Bad, thank you. Okay. This is bad comparison. When we look back at Paul's comments earlier where he said, you know, I'm working harder than these guys. There's still something more haughty about the Pharisees' comments than Paul's earlier. He isn't just noticing that things are going well for him. He's building himself up at the expense of others. That's the kicker. The Pharisees, the Pharisee who's speaking in this moment seems to not be acknowledging any weaknesses in himself. His prayer is one of arrogance. And Jesus says at the end that God will bring down those who choose to exalt themselves and build up those who humble themselves. That was the stance Paul took. And do you see that this can lead to a bad place? Downward comparison does not always lead us, Festinger thought, to just a healthy level of confidence. Oftentimes when we look down on someone else, we begin to belittle them. It leads us to a place of haughtiness, a place of arrogance, as it did for the Pharisee. So comparison is innate, but not innately bad. Because what the Pharisees should have done is looked over and heard the prayer, right? Of this cat back over here in the back. And went, hey, dude, 
What's that? What, what are you talking about there? What do you mean you're a sinner? What kind of, what, what kind of sins do you commit? Well, I do that too. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm guilty of that too. Right? Like, he, he should have been driven to go talk to this man who seemed at, at such a more humble place. You see, the comparison game is happening naturally in our heads, but there's almost always, there is always a better way to handle it. Comparison is innate, but not innately bad, but it can be really bad, as we see in Cain and Abel and with the Pharisee. Here's the, here's the ways we can guard ourselves. Comparison keys for the believer. I want to show you two quick things. Um, in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, back to 1 Corinthians 15. I know it's been a Bible drill here, but 1 Corinthians 15, back in verse 9 and 10, let me read them again. For I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is what you need to know. If you're going to, when this comparison thought comes in your mind, if you want to handle it well, the first thing you've got to have is a right view of self. Have a right view of self. So what we see for Paul, right? So we see for him. Paul is willing to acknowledge his past mistakes. He doesn't gloss over his past or try to blame his mistakes on others. A believer in Christ is going to first admit that we are sinners who make a mess of things. Uh, two weeks ago, I was talking with Kyle and Danielle Lyons, our, our, uh, our small group coordinators, in the lobby. And I told them, everyone here knows me as Heath the pastor. But I know myself first and foremost not as Heath the pastor, not as Heath the dad, not as Heath the husband, not as Heath the Christian, but as Heath the sinner. I know the depths of my wretchedness. You don't always know my mind and my heart. Because what I know about myself is that I don't deserve any of the roles that I get to serve in. And I'll run back through them. Pastor, dad, husband, even a child of God. I don't deserve any of those. So the acknowledgement of my sinfulness definitely plays into the way I compare myself to others. Do I do it? Yes. I told the first service, I hate to hear a good preacher because if I'm not in a good place, when I hear a good preacher, what's my response? Oh, man, wow, he's such a better communicator than me. Man, that was such a good... I wish I could tell stories like him and not get the details all wrong and be confusing. Because you're laughing because you know I do it sometimes. Like, I know those things. Like, that's, that's going on in my head. But I've got to approach it like Paul did. Hey, man, I am a mess. I've got, I've got to just acknowledge that. I want to build myself up into something that I'm not. Because if I build myself up and I've convinced myself, I ain't no better pastor around than me. When I hear that good pastor, when I see, when I see something go on and I see the, the work of another good pastor, I'm, I'm going to have to just put myself over him like the Pharisee. I've got to approach it like Paul did in humility. He said, I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. Because i got sin. i got sin in my heart still. We need to approach comparison, acknowledging that, yes, we are sinners. But it also, we have to have this. That, that, that's not the only piece. We've got to have this piece, point B, whatever, right view of God. We've got to have a right view of self, we've got to have a right view of God. Look at the turn at the beginning of verse 10. Look at, how, look at how Paul says this. 
For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's what he feels like discredited him in so many people's eyes. But listen to what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I know you thought that was Popeye. Popeye said that. I am what I am. All right. You never know how stuff's going to land. Popeye wasn't the first one to say that. Paul was. And I resonate with that. I'm not worthy to be called a pastor, a dad, a husband, a friend, a child of God. But by God's grace, that's where I stand. That's where I am. God has chosen me, though I am undeserving of each one. God has chosen to use me in all those roles. And your roles are different. Maybe you've got more roles. Maybe you've got less roles. But God has called you to be in those roles, whether you feel worthy for them or not. God has you there. You are what you are. By God's grace. This is the catch. When Paul uses this upward comparison here, he isn't driven down to despair, but he hopes in God. You see, he says, I am unworthy to be here. I I should not be there. But guess what? I am by God's grace. By God's grace, he has called me to this position and he will use me in this position. This is the whole point of Romans 8, 29. God has one purpose for all believers from before the foundation of the word. If you don't know Romans 8, 29, it'll make you feel icky if you've been around church a lot. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined because that's a, whoo, that makes your legs shaky to hear the word predestined in the Bible. But those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is, this is what it means. If you're a Christian in the room, God had one purpose for you from the foundation of the world. You know what it was? To look like Jesus. And the Bible is clear that there will be nothing that will stop his plans. So what does that mean? Let's put them together. This means that from the foundation of the world, God had one purpose for you. That was to trust in Jesus and to to look like Jesus. And he's going to use everything at his disposal to make sure it happens at the end. That's where you should say amen. Because though things may not look happy right now, though the world around you, when you get on Instagram, everybody looks happier than you. When you get on Facebook, everyone's fussing a little bit less than you. But God has a purpose for you to be conformed to the image of Son, and He will see that process through. So take heart. That's what Paul found himself. But skip down to how verse, see how verse 10 ends. Paul compares himself to the apostles again in a downward comparison. Instead of the upward, now he does downward. He says, I'm unworthy. But I'm outworking all these guys. I am killing it. Do y'all see how many churches we've planted? Do y'all see this missionary team I've got? Good night. We're getting after it. Every day I'm outworking these guys. And this can sound a little braggy if Paul had a period after that statement, but he does not. Look at verse 10. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Listen to this. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. In this downward comparison that Paul is doing, it's supposed to encourage him. He gives credit to God and his grace. He empties himself of any credit that anybody would give. And he says, it wasn't me who has outworked these apostles. It is God's grace working through me. I stink and love this. 
If you have a tendency in your life to, uh, to look around at others in a downward comparison way, what Paul is showing us here is that we need to humble ourselves in the midst of that and be reminded that if you have anything good in your life, if you have any talent, skill, natural ability, or attractiveness of physical nature or attractiveness of your personality, it is thanks to God's grace and that alone. So quit bragging about it. You didn't do nothing to earn it anyway, and God could take it away in a moment if you do. This is a beautiful picture Paul is giving us of upward where we recognize that it's God's grace that brought us up. And then when we look downward, we're recognizing that if not by God's grace, we'd be right there where they are. Where they are. Paul shows us that the believer's comparison game that is going to happen in our heads doesn't have to lead to sadness and frustration on one end or haughtiness and belittling of others on the other end. Instead, it should and will lead to worshiping the God whose grace is greater than our sin. Today, I don't know where you are with comparison. I don't know what your struggles are. But here's what I know. I know you're human. I know that sometime this week, you're going to look at someone else and you're going to either look up at them or you're going to look down at them. It's going to happen. Don't look at me and say it's not. So before we can compare ourselves to anyone, what we've talked about today is that we've got, as Paul did, we've got to have a right view of self, a humble place. We've got to have a right view of God, recognizing that anything we have comes from Him. And today, if you've been in this place of comparing yourself to others, it's why we're doing this message series, because so many of you told me this is a hurdle for me. And check yourself. If you need to confess sins before the Lord today, then do so. During this last song, if you need to admit God's beauty and His grace, I can't think of a better way to use this last song of response. If you're naturally drawn towards one of these types of comparison, upward or downward, check yourself in the midst of it. Make sure that God is the one who is being glorified, not, not yourself or someone else. And today, here's what I can say. I can honestly say, after a drink, that every single person on the face of the earth is battling comparison this week. However, those of us who have trusted in Christ have the key. Because apart from Christ in your life, apart from the Holy Spirit in you now, this week you would be driven to despair or you would be driven to haughtiness. It's going to happen. But by God's grace. Through the work in the Spirit in us, we can respond to these thoughts of comparison we have. I know. I was at the ball field all weekend. I know you're thinking, man, Heath's red complexion on his face. That's what I wish I had for my life. I wish my face was as red as Heath's. When you face whatever comparison this week with Christ, you can overcome this. Here's what I know. Some of you are going to face comparison this week and you're going to fail because you don't have Christ in your life. Before you can have the Spirit in you to help you handle this well, you're going to have to trust in Jesus as your Savior. And if you've never done that, that's also what this last song is for. We're going to have volunteers by the back door. I'm going to be right down here on the front singing. If you need to come talk to those volunteers that are back there that are trained, ready to talk with you and, and just have a conversation about where you're at, or you want to come talk to me, do that during this last song. God wants you to be
be able to handle the comparison game that's going to come. So I'm going to say a word of prayer. And, and I'm going to be up here worshiping God, just thanking Him for His beauty and His grace. And whatever, however you need to respond during this last song, that's, you do it, okay? I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll stand and respond. Father, we love you, God. And we thank you, um, God, for uh, your word. God, your word that, that, that uh, God, there's so many truths, Lord. Uh, truths that, that keep us grounded. Uh, when we have a tendency to, to get haughty. And God, truths that, that draw our hearts up when we have a tendency to head to despair. And God, your grace is the one, the thing that does all of that. And God, I'm thankful that at a young age you called me. And God, and I responded in faith and repentance. And God, today I pray that God, there be some here who would respond to God, that they would trust in Jesus as their Savior today and God be changed, not only for today, but for eternity. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to respond to your word. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, let's stand. They're going to sing this song. You sing with them. You can pray where you are, or you can talk to one of us as, uh, to help you work through something.